Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. If you're following along on a, in a pew Bible, that can be found on page 599. We'll be looking in particular at the beginning and end of this chapter, and that's, that's printed there for you in your bulletin. I'm going to read the entire passage, and so if you'd like to follow along, you can turn there, or you can just listen as it's very vivid poetry um, that we all can follow along with. We've been considering during Advent time these promises related to Christ's coming, the promised seed, the promised king, and today the promised comfort. And to consider this, we're going to be diving into the heart of Isaiah's beautiful prophecy. And as we do, it's important to spend a few moments just understanding the context of what's going on as we just jump in to chapter 40 of such a beautiful book. Um, This passage comes to people who have been in and are about to go through very dark times. Life has been very difficult for them. There have been relentless, terrifying events happening over and over again on the international stage. There have been shifting alliances of superpowers and growing world powers coming across the stage, repeated threats of destruction for them as a nation. And not just threats, but recently their relatives in the northern kingdom have been deported by the pagan nation of Assyria. And although there had been slight relief for them as Jerusalem had been miraculously spared by God, their king, Hezekiah, had just received word in chapter 39 that it was going to get worse than they had ever imagined. That Babylon was growing in strength and power and they would come and take them and everything that they loved away. Their entire world was about to be shattered. That's the context that we come to as we finish chapter 39. And worst of all, (laughs) the worst part of this news was that it was entirely their fault. Despite warnings from prophet after prophet, they continued to pursue and worship idols. They trusted other human leaders and nations to save them rather than trusting in the Lord their God. And their land was full of injustice. They had failed to protect and care for the people that God had told them they were to care for. And so this was really it. They had broken the covenant that God had made with them at Sinai, and now the consequences were coming. And that grand experiment of sorts of God somehow dwelling with sinful people, it was really coming to an end. That's what they had heard is coming. And it's in that context of this earth-shattering news that the Lord sends forth the most surprising words of chapter 40. Chapter 40 is about as striking as the contrast as you can possibly imagine because what comes to them is good news. It's a promise of comfort that comes to people whose world has been shattered. And what we'll see this morning as we look at it is it's not just good news for them, but it is good news And it is a message of comfort 
for all those who live in a broken and shattered world. And so in that context, I want you to hear God's word in Isaiah chapter 40 as I read it for us. This is God's word. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. 
To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask that he would help us as we consider it this morning. Our Father in heaven, we are reminded of the wonder and the beauty of your word as you speak to your people. We thank you that it has been recorded for us and that it is proclaimed to us and that by your Holy Spirit, you give us faith to believe and to understand and be encouraged by it. We pray that you would illumine our hearts this morning and we ask that you would help us to hear your beautiful promise of comfort today. It's in Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, this morning as we consider Isaiah 40, we'll consider, uh, we'll look at two main points. The first is the promise of the Lord's comfort, and we'll see that in verses 1 through 11, and then we'll jump to the end of the chapter, and we'll consider waiting for the Lord's comfort as we look at verses 27 to 31. And so first of all, let's notice the promise of the Lord's comfort in verses 1 to 11. Chapter 40 surprisingly begins with this repeated call to proclaim comfort to God's people. And it's easy for us, I think, to forget how shocking these words would have been to the original hearers. Many of us have listened to Handel's Messiah or we've read ahead in our Bibles And we know that the exile will one day come to an end and that God will return for his people. But it's important to pause for a moment and think, what would the people of Judah have been expecting on the heels of news that things have become so bad? I think what they would be expecting to hear might be more like, change, change, you sinful people. Or, I'm done, I'm done, you rebellious people. But instead, what we find is that the Lord wants to comfort his people in the midst of this bad news that has come to them. Well, what does it mean to comfort someone? Comforting is easing the grief that someone is experiencing. It's to console them in their trouble. To comfort someone, you have to see the suffering of another person. And to comfort someone, you have to care 
and move toward them in their pain. And this is exactly what the Lord does. He looks ahead and he sees the grief and the trouble that his people are going to endure. And he considers for himself what this will do to him to experience the exile. And rather than leaving them in their misery, he moves toward them in their pain. And he moves towards them with a message of what will be to bring them comfort in their pain. And what is this message? Well, it's, it's beautiful and layer upon layer, but I'll just point out three things. We'll consider three things that we see in this message of comfort in verses 1 through 11. The first truth or promise is that they are still his people. They are still his people. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. Do you realize that the pronouns of verse 1 would stop the people of God in their tracks. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Somehow they are still his people and he is still their God. And again, we know the end of the story so we forget how shocking this is, but but how can this be? They have broken the covenant that he made with them at Sinai. The exile that is coming signals that it's over. But look at what he says in verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is legal and covenant language that's that's being um, focused on here. The Lord is saying he has found a way for their punishment to end. The warfare that they have brought upon themselves will be over and they can have peace. Their iniquity, their sin, and their guilt, it is going to be all forgiven. He says, you've received double for your sins. That, That doesn't mean that they've unjustly somehow received double for the wrongs that they've done, but instead it's a way of the Lord choosing to say, your hands are full and it's enough of suffering and I will bring it to an end. How? How can this be? There's nothing in the Sinai covenant that says you can suffer enough to somehow atone for the wrongs that you have brought upon yourself. But instead, what we find is that the Lord will find a way by his grace to forgive them, to pay their debt, and to continue in relationship with them. Later we'll see that he's able to do this because the suffering servant will bear their iniquity for them. And you see, this is a message of comfort that they are still his people because of his grace. But while there is legal language in this and it's in a covenantal context, I think it's important for us also to see that it's not just legal language but he is affirming his love for them. Verse 2 says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Literally, it's speak to her heart. And it's not just come speaking in some sort of soft tone instead of a loud voice. 
but to speak to her heart is the, the same phrase that the Lord uses in Isaiah or Hosea 2.14 when he speaks of how he's going to woo his people back to himself because of his love for them. He says, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness. Remember where it, where it all began? And he will speak tenderly to her. He will find a way to forgive them, to remain in covenant with them. Why? Because he loves them. And so the first part of this message of comfort is that despite their sin, they are still his people. By his grace, he has found a way to fix what was wrong, and he has done so because he loves them. But then secondly, what we see in his message of comfort is that he is coming to them. He is coming to them. We see this in verses 3 through 8. If you remember, the problem that we saw as we've been studying Exodus was one of God's presence. Sure, he can relent of destroying the people after the golden calf, but the question is, can God continue along with them somehow? Well, here, sure, their suffering will end, and and that's good news. He's found a way, but what about the Lord? What about his presence? Notice what verse 3 says. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the proclamation that comes forth is, your great king is coming to you. He's not going to leave you in exile. And verse 4 tells us that nothing can stop him. Valleys lift up and become level. He doesn't have to think of how to go around mountains because they bow down before him. He is coming and his glory will be seen by all. And then verses 6 through 8 assure the people, this is really going to happen. People are like grass and they're like flowers. They quickly fade. But the word of our God will stand forever. He has spoken this and it will happen. He's coming to you. And so they're his people. He's coming to them. But then it gets even better. Verses 9 through 11 really show us he's coming for them. He's coming for them. From the mountaintop, good news is to be proclaimed from the suffering people to suffering people, a threefold behold. Behold your God. Why? Because we can see him coming. He's marching across the wilderness. His sleeves are rolled up. He comes with might. Nothing can stop his arm. He already even has the spoils of victory with him. And with the power of his arm, he will destroy everything that has opposed him and he will destroy everything that has caused his people to suffer. And yet notice his arm toward his people in verse 11. He will tend his flock as a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young with that same arm that stretches out in power and undoes everything that stands against him and against his people. With that same arm, he reaches out and he takes them to himself and he gently cares for them as he draws them close. 
And so really, it's a message that comes full circle, doesn't it? It's a message of the comforting care of God that comes to his people in their suffering. And as we consider that, and as we consider the rest of Scripture and what it says about comfort, I think it's important to realize something, that ultimately the Lord's message of comfort is a message of his caring presence. It's not that comfort just comes to us apart from him, but it comes to us when he comes to us. The message here is he will come to them, and when he does, he will make all things right. And his making all things right is something that's so deep and so profound that it's hard for us to even fathom. The message of comfort that the Lord brings in the scripture is not just that all evil will stop, and not that we will just stop experiencing bad things, but something good will come. He will come. And when God comes, who he is and what he does is so good and so glorious that it will overwhelm the loss that we have experienced in waiting for him. There's a beautiful picture of this comfort later on in Isaiah 51.3. And as, as I read it, I just want you to hear what it says about these places of curse, these places of loss that we experience as God's people. It says, For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places. And he makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. You see, somehow, when the Lord comes to comfort his people, he takes our waste places, he takes our wildernesses, our deserts, and he transforms them into Eden, the garden paradise of life with him in blessedness. And so when the Bible says that God will wipe away every tear and that one day there will be no more crying, it's not just because bad things have stopped happening to us, but it's because a comfort so deep has come that there's no longer any need to mourn. And so at Advent, we remember that this promised comfort has come And this comfort will come. Faithful Simeon, through the eyes of faith, saw an eight-day-old baby, and he knew that God's comfort, the consolation of Israel, had arrived. And Jesus' cousin John showed up in the wilderness saying, this is it, the Lord has come. And how shocking is it that when God showed up, it was as one of us, and it was in the flesh. And it shows just how far he will go to comfort us, doesn't it? Our suffering is not just something that God thinks about intellectually, but through Jesus, God came as one of us to live in our shattered world so that in a very real way, we can say, God knows your pain. And it's through Jesus that God was able to say, not only to the exiles, but to all his people, 
Your punishment is over. Your sin is forgiven. Because when Jesus came, he came as the lamb who would take away the sin of the world. He was pierced for his people's transgressions. He was crushed for their iniquities. He received from God's hand the cup of wrath that we deserved so that our hands could be doubly filled with blessing and life. And not only did Jesus' coming ensure that we could be forgiven, but it ensures that all will be made right. Because he was raised in resurrection life that guarantees that all those who are united to him by faith will be raised together with him when he comes again. And we will be with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth where all is made right. You see, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection proclaims to us that we can be truly blessed even when we mourn because we will be comforted when he comes again. That's great news, isn't it? It's a comfort so profound, I think we could just spend a long time thinking about it. But that comfort has not yet fully come, has it? And so what do we do while we wait for it? And that's one of the most amazing things to me about the rest of Isaiah 40 that I'd I'd really never seen before. I'd always heard it in parts disconnected from comfort. But... The second thing that we'll consider this morning is is not the promise of the Lord's comfort, which we already considered, but secondly, waiting for the Lord's comfort. And we see some life-giving words about this in verses 27 to 31. You see, the promise of comfort comes to those who are still in darkness. Every audience that hears Isaiah 40, hears it as those who are still waiting for what it promises. The original audience has just heard words that the exile is coming, and it is a long way from them ever returning. Others will hear this in exile while weeping on the shores of Babylon when they think about what has happened to Jerusalem. Others will hear and continue to think of Isaiah 40 when they have returned to the land, and when they weep because things are not as they had hoped that they would be. And we too hear this message of comfort while we are waiting for the fullness of what God has promised us. But this waiting is not a surprise to God, even though it can feel like a surprise to us. And God goes on to encourage them with two things to do. He shows them how to deal with the doubts and the weariness that they experience while they wait for his comfort. And so we'll look at those two things. The first is how to deal with the doubts. And we see this in verses 27 and 28. After this message of comfort, and then verses 12 to 26, which we heard read, which gloriously show the Lord's ability to do all that he has said, then we come to verse 27. It says, Why do you say, O Jacob, And speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. The language there is really, why do you keep saying this? These are perpetual 
questions for God's people. And notice what those questions are. First, my way is hidden from the Lord. It's saying somehow in the midst of all the hardship that I'm going through, it feels like God doesn't see the path that I'm walking. And really, actually what it's saying is probably more pointed than that. God doesn't want to see. He has hidden his eyes from my way and from what I'm going through. And secondly, God's people often feel what they say here, my right is disregarded by my God. If he cares so much, why isn't he doing anything about it? Why isn't he taking up my cause, making things right for me? Alec Mateer in his commentary says, it carries the idea, my case keeps getting dismissed before God. I love that the Bible gives voice to these questions, don't you? Because as we walk this long and dark road in a shattered world, waiting for the coming comfort, these are the questions that come into our minds and our hearts. Why aren't you seeing what's happening to me? And if you see it, why aren't you doing anything about it, God? And notice the Lord's response. He doesn't answer the why question per se, but he gives them and he gives us what we need in our doubts. He says in verse 28, Have you not known and have you not heard? He takes them back to what they know and to what they've heard in God's word. And he says, in your wondering, in your doubts, remember who I am. And then he has these brief statements that give a summary of what has been unpacked in verses 12 to 26. And let me just walk through them. The Lord is the everlasting God. Why is that comforting? From our vantage point, it seems like suffering will never end. We go from one bad situation to another or something good happens and then it doesn't last that long and then another wave of of suffering comes. But not so with God. He will outlast it all. He is the everlasting God. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. These problems that we face may seem so big. I can barely navigate my own heart, my own life, let alone the issues of our church, our state, our country, our world. But our God is the creator of the ends of the earth. Nothing is too big for him to handle. And he does not grow faint or weary does not faint or grow weary. We often think maybe God feels like we do. We have lots of good ideas, perhaps, but we're too tired to follow through on so many of them, too tired to keep up, but not so with God. He has all the strength and all the resources to do all the good that he desires. And then fourth, it says his understanding is unsearchable. We look around at this broken world. We look at the shattered pieces of our hearts and our lives. And we wonder how it is ever possible that things could work out in such a way that the wilderness would be turned to Eden, that we would find comfort from all this pain. But what does he remind us of? His understanding is unsearchable. Even though we can't figure it out, it is not a challenge to God 
in the least. He didn't even have to study (laughs) to try and figure this out. And so as we walk through the darkness and as we experience these doubts, our God calls us to remember who he is. And in particular, what he calls us to remember is how much different than us he is. He says, you can't imagine how this could ever all work out. But I could think of a way. I have thought of a way. And now I am tirelessly working the entire universe to that end where goodness and glory will be forever and you will be a part of it. And so God calls us to remember him in our doubts. And so we seek to do that. But what I love about this passage too is that it acknowledges that it's not easy and that it's hard and that we often get tired along the way. Secondly, he tells us in this section how to deal with the weariness. How to deal with the doubts and then how to deal with the weariness. This passage isn't naive about how difficult this is. And for many of us, these are familiar words, aren't they? Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But do you realize where the weariness and the exhaustion are coming from? They're coming from walking along the way while waiting for the comfort of God. It's exhausting. It's wearying. And even the fittest among you will fall from exhaustion. And so, and what I love about this too is the the words that it brings together, the words faint and weary are repeated throughout this section Faint captures the idea of coming to an end of your resources, of being tired, of of having no gas in the tank. There's, There's nothing left inside and you're faint. And then weariness captures being beaten down by waves of opposition. It's being overcome by those things that are outside of you that come upon you like waves. And so what is it that we need to know in our weariness, and as we feel faint inside. Well, he tells his people, in your weariness, return to God for strength. Return to God for strength. Again, in verse 28, he reminds us that he's not like us. He doesn't grow faint or grow weary. And in fact, in verse 29, he says he has so much strength that he gives it to the faint and the weary. But how do we receive it? Well, there it is in verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It says those who wait for the Lord renew their strength. It doesn't mean that we renew somehow our own strength, but that word renew comes from the word exchange. And I think that captures so beautifully what's going on there. We take our lack of strength. We take our faintness and our weariness and we bring it to the Lord for strength and he exchanges our faintness and our weariness for his strength. And so you see what happens is waiting on the Lord isn't passivity. It's active dependence upon him. 
There's a beautiful expression of God's people waiting for him earlier in the book in in chapter 33, verse 2. It says, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. And then hear this. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. Do you see what waiting for the Lord is? It's coming to him every morning. It's coming to him every moment saying, God, I don't have the strength. I'm faint inside and I'm weary from the outside. But please be my arm. Give me strength to trust you and to continue on the way today. And and the passage tells us that the strength that he gives, it's different than human strength. It's like an eagle's strength. And the the image isn't just that like an eagle, we can just soar above all of our problems. I kind of wish that's what it was saying. But it's not saying that at all. What it's actually showing us about the eagle is the eagle's stamina. The eagle's wings are made so that he can fly tirelessly on and on. Do you ever see an eagle that's tired of flying? He's made to continue. And so what it's telling us is that when we find ourselves faint and weary and exhausted, waiting for the fullness of all that God has promised, it's no surprise to God. He's not offended by that. He's not disgusted by it. It's actually natural for humans to feel this way. But he invites us in our weariness to come to him and he will renew our strength, so that we can keep running, we can keep walking. A lot of times it feels like crawling along the way while we wait for him to make all things right. You see, at Advent, we remember that our Lord Jesus came and we remember that he's coming again. And part of that means that our Lord Jesus knew that our waiting would be difficult And that's why when he left, he sent us another helper, another comforter, the the Holy Spirit, the same spirit who hovered over the waters at creation, the same spirit who sustained God's people in the wilderness, the same spirit who descended as like a dove upon our Lord Jesus at the initiation of his earthly ministry. He now indwells us and empowers us to wait upon the Lord with eagle strength. And he himself is actually that very message of comfort, isn't he? He is the one who reminds us of all that we have known and heard that has come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the spirit of adoption who proclaims to us that we are still God's people. Even more so, we are his sons and daughters forever because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the seal and the guarantee that Christ will come for us one day and we will experience the fullness of the comfort of dwelling forever with our triune God. May that same spirit help us even today to be assured of our promised comfort until our Lord comes. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess our own doubts. We confess our own weariness. We're comforted by the fact that you know 
the brokenness and the shatteredness of our world, and that yet you have a plan to make all things right in such a way that we will truly be comforted. We thank you that that comfort has broken in upon us already through our Lord Jesus. We pray that you would give us the strength to follow you faithfully until that day when he returns. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.